one of the most beautiful things of Christmas time is these beautiful Christmas carols we get to sing, and some of them, like that one, I think, are even better than original. Hearing the gospel story right in the midst of singing of the birth. So thank you for remaining standing as we read from God's word this morning. Our passage is Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 15. If you're a guest with us, we've been going through the gospel of Matthew now for 118 Sundays. And so here we are now, excuse me, this is the 118th Sunday. So we're coming to the end and um, it's Christmas time and usually the sermon would be about the incarnation and the birth of Christ, but what a better thing to grab our attention today. Is there a better thing than the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave? And so this is what we will study and, and be blessed with this morning. Matthew chapter 28, 1 through 15. Hear the word of the living God. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. And so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guards went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. <clears throat> and when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. And so they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy, inerrant, infallible word. And may he write its truths on our hearts today. Would you join me in prayer once again? Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his birth. We thank you for his, his life. We thank you for his sacrificial death. And we thank you for the glorious resurrection, how deep and profound these truths run in our lives. God, open our eyes to see them today in unique ways, in ways that would thrill our hearts and lead us into action of obedience of faith, Lord. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. And please be seated. And, and I believe if you haven't already gotten a, a sermon handout notes, they're already out, not here. Okay, not here today. All right, no worries. It's all right. It's Christmas. Y'all just have to listen. No notes today. How many of y'all like Christmas music? Look at all the hands. All right. Before Thanksgiving? After Thanksgiving. All right. All right. Y'all are, are the right people I'm talking to today. Good. There's, uh, I love Christmas songs. I can't wait till turn them on and not only the hymns all the other ones and there's a song I heard the other day and you probably heard it a bunch of times as well it's written by David Foster who's an amazing arranger and and uh, uh, musician and it's called my grown-up Christmas list anyone remember that song these are the words to it he says do you remember me I sat upon your knee I wrote to you with childhood fantasies well, I'm all grown up now and still need help somehow. I'm not a child, but my heart can still dream. So here's my lifelong wish, my grown-up Christmas list. Not for myself, but for a world in need. And this is the list. No more lives torn apart. That wars would never start. And time would heal all hearts. And everyone would have a friend. And right would always win. And love would never end. No, this is my 
grown-up Christmas list. And he goes on and says, as children, we believe the grandest sight to see was something lovely wrapped beneath a tree, but heaven only knows that packages and bows can never heal a hurting human soul. And that's some true words there. But there's a tagline at the end of the song that says, what is this illusion called the innocence of youth? Maybe only in our blind belief can we ever find the truth. And so the song ends quite sadly with this supposed blind unbelief of something out there somewhere that maybe, maybe in some magical way can deliver on the things that are on the list. No more lives torn apart, wars would cease and never start. Time would heal all hearts and everyone would have a friend. The right would always win and love would never end. See, as, as believers in Christ, we don't have to write this grown-up Christmas list. Because all of those things are fulfilled in Christ. This is where he is taking the world, and as we look around at the world around us, it's, it's hard to see that sometimes because we see a lot of darkness and such. But what I want to bring out to you this morning in looking at the resurrection is what is reality, right? We go through suffering and pain and challenges, and, and we often say, and I've said words like this, well, welcome to the real world, <laughs> right? That's, that's the world of, of, of difficulties and the world of pain, and, 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 and it's hard and it's difficult and challenging. yes. There's a reality there, but, but today we're going to talk about this new reality that is ours in Christ. It transforms, it changes everything. The only reason we're actually here today, why are we here gathered in worship? Why are we celebrating Christmas? And why are we celebrating it with such joy? And the, the only reason is because Jesus is alive. Because Jesus died and rose from the grave. This is the fulcrum event of all of human history. All of history. It answers the most important question in the world. Did Jesus rise from the dead? This is necessary for us to understand and to answer not only with our words and, 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 our, and our hearts, but with our actions and our deeds. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, it's useless, and you're still in your sins. And you'll have to sing songs of wish upon a star like we do, like, like people that don't know this truth sing. He said in verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Without the resurrection, Christmas means nothing. Nothing but Subtle and simple and superficial attempts to, to make the magic last. So, so enjoy a few warm fuzzies. Enjoy the Christmas spirit for, for a few days where everyone's nice before they get mean again. Before it goes back to reality. Today, we're going to look at reality. What's really real. It's going to the text today, these 15 verses, are built around five different beholds. It's translated behold in the ESV four times, see one time. And it's a, it's a word that means to, to call our attention to what might be seen, heard, or apprehended in any way. Behold, it could be the sermon title, but you know it kind of sounds a little too old English. So, so I title it, look at this. <laughs> Because that's what it means. Look at this. And that's what I want to do today. I want to I pull out the gem, the treasure, the brilliant diamond, the, the priceless treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ culminating in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I want to turn it and let's, let's examine it from as many angles as we can. Look at this brilliant treasure today. Look at the vindication of Jesus Christ. Look at the victory of Jesus Christ. Look at reality for Christians. Two points 
broken it down into the first is this, a redeemed reality. This is where we live in, a redeemed reality. See how it comes to pass in the narrative. Verse 1, again, now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. They came here to to finish the preparation of the body. We saw that Jesus was was put in the tomb right before the Sabbath, so there wasn't a lot of time. They had to get the body in there and buried and and, and done and ready before the Sabbath. So, So after the Sabbath here on Sunday morning, the first day of the week, they come to the tomb fully expecting to find the dead body of Jesus, to finish the embalming process, to care for the Lord in His death. The tomb had been sealed. A huge stone rock covered the opening to the tomb. The women did wonder in another gospel. It tells us who's going to roll the stone away for us. But yet by faith they, they come because they love and care for him and they want to take care of him. As Jesus was laid in the tomb and the sky grew dark, the bright hopes of these women, the bright hopes of all the disciples began to dim with each passing moment. It was bleak. There was despair. There was mourning. The blackest of darkness. The failed hopes, the dashed dreams of the disciples of Jesus as He lay dead in the tomb. Three days had been spent of great sorrow as the disciples mourn the loss of their friend, their master. Days of cowering. Days of hiding. Days of fear. And yet what the disciples didn't understand or remember was was that Jesus had told them in order for the dawn of joyous life to begin, the night of this atrocious death must come. And Jesus had already told His disciples clearly. He said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Let those words sink in for a minute. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. A world characterized by sin and misery and the rule of of the deceiver would end in the death of the Son of God in order that a new world that was characterized by holiness, by the awesome presence of God could be fully realized. To think that only three days after the culmination of the old world's wickedness, the first day of the new world would begin. And don't miss the significance. The the resurrection of Jesus Christ didn't merely occur on the first day of the week. Matthew makes note of that. And I told you before, he, he, he doesn't leave, he puts things in there purposefully. He wants us to know this is the first day of the week because it was also his understanding that it was literally the first day, not only of the week, but the first day of a new creation. A creation that would be characterized by resurrection life. Never since the creation of the world had a day bond with so much power, so much newness. We remember how Matthew sees the gospel the good news, all the way back in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verse, the book of the genealogy, the word is actually Genesis. This is Genesis redone. This is the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. It's all about His new creative work. And think of the power of creation. Think of the power of a God that can speak the universe into existence how, how omnipotent, how, how amazing, how all-powerful is this God? And, and, and lest we lose sight of it, that's exactly what's happening, if not even greater. Greater than the creation of the physical world. Here is Jesus Christ's work in recreating the world by His work on the cross and His resurrection power. This new creation, it's revealed in a new life. It brings a new understanding. It creates a new man, a, a new family, a new power, a new worship. Everything changes because of the empty tomb. The Gospels began with an angelic announcement at the birth of Jesus Christ. It's what we're celebrating tomorrow. The birth of one who will prepare the way for the one who will save his people from their sins as 
as it was announced that John the Baptist was born and then Jesus was born and then now Matthew comes to conclude the gospel with this angelic announcement of a resurrection. Behold, he is making all things new. This is what's happening as the women come at the first day of the week. They come to see the tomb. In verse 2 it tells us, And behold, there was a great earthquake. We saw another earthquake recently at the death of Christ, at the crucifixion. And now there's another great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. Matthew is the only gospel writer who actually notes this earthquake. And, and it's helpful us to understand the earthquake didn't cause the stone to be rolled away. And if anything, the angelic rolling of the stone prompted the earthquake. The angel comes to, to, with this great earthquake to, to roll the stone away. When the two women come to the tomb, they, they see the stone rolled away. They see this angel sitting on the stone. Imagine an angel sitting on a stone. On, on, I mean, number one, it's, it's, it's amazing thought here because of what happens. We see in verse 4, and for fear of him, for fear of the angel, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Here's the rough, tough Roman soldiers. These are the, the Navy SEALs of their day falling over as dead scared to death at the sight of this holy angel. Why is the angel come? Well, Scripture says here he came to roll the stone away, but, but did, did Jesus need that? We, we know from other Gospels he could pass through walls in his resurrected body. He certainly had the power to do it himself. So why the angel? The angel comes as a witness. The angels were witnesses throughout the ministry of Jesus Christ, throughout his life. And now at the greatest part of his life, the culmination of, of his life in the crowning of, of, of him as, as the resurrected Lord, the angel comes. The earthquake turns into a manquake. The Roman soldiers fall down as dead. And he didn't even draw a sword doesn't tell us he, he came out like to scare them or anything. They were just scary creatures. That's why I, I, I don't read this in Scripture. This is just Brian Hendry. But I kind of imagine, I have a kind of a crazy imagination sometimes, and I imagine like there had to have been some type of angel training in heaven at some point. Because every time an angel comes to visit the people of God in particular, they say the same thing every time. What is it? Don't be afraid. <laughs> So there's got to be some kind of class that, that God, hey, hey guys, when you come in touch with these humans, they ain't seen nothing like you. They're going to be shaking in their boots. So just tell them, hey, don't be afraid. It's okay. They always say it. But do you notice they don't say it to the soldiers. <laughs> the angel doesn't say it to, to these guys. He just shows up on the scene and these guys fall down like they're dead. The angel says to the women in verse 5, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. Back from the dead, he is the first to be resurrected. He ascended into heaven. And he continues to reign as, as resurrected man. Think of this. Still fully man and fully God. Imagine, consider this with me. A man, the man, sits on the throne of God in heaven right now. That'll blow our minds. He said he's risen as he said. He's reminding the women and the disciples, you should have expected this. It's, it's exactly what he promised and now it's here. Come and see the place that he, that he lays. I believe that's why the stone was rolled away. It wasn't rolled away so Jesus could get out. The stone was rolled away so that others could look in and see and be persuaded that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, that the tomb is actually empty. This invitation, see, behold, look at this, look at the place where he laid. It's appropriately addressed to, to those same people who had watched the body being put into the tomb. 
They saw the whole thing. These, these, these women were there the whole time. And now they know exactly where He was and now they can look at it and see He's gone. He's not there. The fact of the resurrection, it's clear and it's clear enough, but, but we also have to grapple with the meaning of the resurrection. Jesus was resurrected. In, in, and in so, He proved that His death was effective, was an actual propitiation for sin. That really, sin was really paid for on the cross. The wrath of God was really appeased in His death. The Father had accepted it as such. The cross really was the payment. The resurrection was the receipt of payment paid in full. And the angel wanted those women to go in, go see the place where they laid Him. And in seeing it, they see that the Father did not forsake Jesus. That death has been conquered and that we have a living hope in Jesus Christ. So they invite the women, come and see. And then they give the admonition, then in verse 7, go quickly and tell. Tell His disciples that He's risen from the dead. And another, behold, and behold, He's going before you to Galilee. There you will see Him. See, I've told you. And I love the, the action steps that the angel gives them, the call to, 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 to move in faith, to come and see. And once you've seen, now go and tell. We get to talk more about that next week as we look at the Great Commission. It's also notable to understand the prominent place of the witness of the women in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Women who were, who were despised and rejected. Women who, who in this ancient world, their testimony couldn't even be used and lawfully in a court of law. And yet God, in doing His great work, takes these women and puts them in the prominent place of being the first to tell those who would be the heads of the church, as it were. But first of all, these, these godly, faithful, lowly women the Lord appeared to. And the apostles themselves had to go to the school of Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to learn that great truth that the Lord is risen indeed. He's going before you to Galilee. There you'll see Him. This, this assurance that, 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 the, that they would see the resurrected Jesus. What hope that Jesus simply wasn't raised from the dead. He was raised to continue in relationship with them. Verse 8, so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. And I find that amazing. Oftentimes we would not mix those two things, would we? Fear and great joy. Now obviously there's probably some fear in them of, of the not good kind, but, but once the angel tells them don't be afraid, I, I think their, their fear becomes this godly fear, this holy awe, this holy reverence. It's the fear we've been praying for for the month of December for ourselves and for our church. That God would instill this sense of awe and wonder at what, what He's done. That as we look at what He's done, we're, we're, we're dropping our jaws in amazement. And with that, mingled and mixed with that fear, this great joy. Those things can go together. And these women with mingled fear and great joy ran to tell His disciples. And I think it's kind of metaphorical, metaphorically beautiful that when you run in the way of obedience, you're likely to be met by Jesus. And that's exactly what happens. Verse 9, And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. <laughs> I'm laughing because the normal Greek, this is the normal Greek greeting that you would, you know, walking down the street and you see a friend, you'd be like, Hey! He's not like shining and, you know, he's not levitating. He just sees his dear friends and he says, hello. <laughs> I find that amusing. <laughs> I find that wonderful. I find that comforting. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. What else could they do when they see him? Even with a normal greeting of, hey, how you doing? <laughs> They come to Him with awe and wonder, with great fear and with great joy, and they do 
what only could have been done when seeing the risen Christ is just fall at his feet. We don't see him on their knees, but how do you get to hold the feet unless you're prostrate on the ground? They take hold of his feet, and the scripture says they worshiped him. Notably understand, Jesus does not reject the worship like angels do in Scripture. When the angel was of Revelation was talking with John, and John was amazed at this creature, and he falls down to worship him. And John, the angel's like, no, 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 get up. <laughs> up you go. No, 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 I'm just a servant like you. Jesus receives the worship. Receives it joyfully. Receives the worship. And, and then responds in verse 10 and says to them, do not be afraid. Same thing the angel said. Look, I know you're kind of freaking out right now. It's all good. Don't be afraid. Here's what I want you to do. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. And I love this. Go and tell who? My brothers. Where are the brothers? They're hiding. They've been hiding since before the crucifixion. They scattered in the garden when Jesus was arrested. And they're, 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 they're fearful. Oh, don't let the Romans catch us. Don't let, don't let pilots know where we are. Don't let the religious leaders catch us. And here Jesus doesn't come at them and say, bunch of cowards. Bunch of fearful, weaklings, faithless guys. I want to I rip them one upside and down the other. So, so go tell them I'm coming. It's not, it's not our Lord. Our Lord says, you go tell my brothers. My brothers. That's the first time our Lord called his disciples by this endearing name. And they no doubt thought that the Lord would reproach them and discipline them and all their past unfaithfulness, but he gives them full assurance in the most tender terms that all was, all was past. My brothers, I'm going to Galilee and I'm going to be with you. And there you're going to see me. What hope, what comfort, what encouragement. And what a change. Because very soon, these men, these unfaithful cowarding men would be the same men who would be back on the streets of Jerusalem fearlessly proclaiming the good news of the risen Lord. Then Matthew takes us from this beautiful scene that he doesn't give us a whole lot of detail on but he gives us exactly what we need and then he offers a major contrast of the scene in verses 11 through 15. Point number two which I'm calling a toothless tail. Because these men are going to mean for evil, but God will even take their evil once again, as he always does, and turn it for good. And so the tale that they're going to tell becomes toothless. It's like the devil, a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And yet, because of the resurrection, he's already defeated. Verse 11, while they were going... Behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. We see this, this cover-up attempt showing the darkness of, of, of the priests and the religious leaders here. They knew the truth of the resurrection. They were scared of it. They, they tried to fight against it, and yet they reject that truth. And their unbelief is so staunch that they will do anything, even, even giving a large sum of money, a sufficient sum. It means it's, a large, it's, enough, it's large enough to, 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 to be hush money for these soldiers who were fearful for their own lives. It also shows their foolishness. If it was true that the guards were asleep, 
They couldn't know that it was the disciples that stole the body from Jesus, right? I don't know about you, but when I'm sleeping, my eyes are usually closed. And, and, and I'm easily startled, especially if I hear, you know, there's an earthquake or some big massive stone-like rumbling in the background. So to believe this tall tale, we have to believe that, that all the soldiers were asleep. How, however many of them there, there were there, there was probably a good contingent there. We'd have to believe that every one of the soldiers violated the strict law of the Roman military against sleeping on watch, which is, which is punishable by death. We'd have to believe that all the soldiers slept so deeply that none of them were awakened by the work and, and the exertion and the noise necessary to, to roll the stone away and carry the body out. That all the soldiers, we'd have to believe, were so soundly sleeping, and yet they still know who did it. No serious person could believe such foolishness. And yet, Matthew notes that this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. The authorities have tried to cover up the resurrection by advancing the very story that they hoped to prevent. They set the seal on the tomb, they put a guard on the tomb, and it could not stop the inevitable. You see, Jesus as the only sinless man, being the only sinless man, could not stay dead. The wages of sin is death. He owed no wages. He paid our wages. He owed no wages. And therefore, it was impossible to keep him down. You could not keep him in the grave. And yet, we still today see how this story Reminds us of the many stories that are out there in the world today that easily just dismiss the evidence standing right in front of them and the witness of the Holy Spirit. That many will veil and believe veil, failing lies and veil their eyes and not believe. The Gospels provide us with incredibly reliable accounts of the historic event of Christ's resurrection. And, and a lot of people say, well, what about science? we got to prove it. See, I'm going to disprove it with science. What even is science? To be scientific, you have to demonstrate things and observe them. Were you there? <laughs> Did you see it? And now can you repeat it? That's the scientific process. But yet, modern man wants to be, oh, I trust science. And if... And I wish, it's not apologetic sermon today, so I can't go deep into it. But the legal proof of the resurrection of the Christ is undeniable. No jury anywhere in the world would hear the evidence and throw it out. All attempts to explain the resurrection fail. I think that's Matthew's point in writing this section, because it's kind of strikes me funny initially as I'm, I'm looking like why did Matthew end such a climactic event in Christ's work on such a negative note? Obviously we're going back up on the mountain with the Great Commission next week but, but why this story that he throws in here? I know it's short but it's, I think it's more verses than, than the actual Great Commission text. And I like what John MacArthur said about this. He said, the efforts of those enemies is perhaps the strongest human testimony to the reality of the resurrection, causing it to have the exact opposite effect from what was intended. <laughs> See, Matthew's account simply but forcefully shows that any explanation but the actual bodily resurrection of Jesus contradicts the facts and offends reason. The truth of the resurrection, it, it's so absolute that even a lie against it helps prove it. And that's exactly what was going on here. So it's been going on the whole time. Matthew says a bunch of stories, this story spread, other stories spread. Charles Spurgeon wrote these words, I suppose, brethren, that we may have a person's arise who will doubt whether there was ever such a man as Julius Caesar or Napoleon Bonaparte. And when they do, when all reliable history is flung to the winds, then, but not till then, may they begin to question whether Jesus Christ rose from the dead. For this historical fact is attested by more witnesses than almost any other fact that stands on recorded history, whether sacred or profane. 
It's ridiculous the things that men have come up with to try to show what is the undeniable fact that the tomb is empty. Oh, they, they hallucinated. 500 all at once? It's just crazy. But in the end, people will believe what they believe, and I want to ask you today, what story do you believe? What story do you believe? And not only what story do you believe, what story do you live? What story does your life display? What do you do with this treasure? We said we're going to pull out this diamond and look at it from multiple angles today. And we, we haven't even scratched the surface. We could, we're going to spend all eternity at wondering at the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet sometimes as Christians, all we do is pull the gems out of our, out of our pocket, the treasure chest. We open it up and, and we take it out and we look at it and then we polish it. Oh, shine it up. And too often we're guilty of polishing doctrines instead of applying doctrines. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, this is the real world. Reality is transformation, change, growth from glory to glory. The reality is that we as Christians are never without hope because of the resurrection of Christ. There's never any circumstance in which you have no hope. Never, ever, ever. No matter how bleak or dark or challenging. You always have the hope of Christ. The resurrection shows that. The resurrection is power. The Apostle Paul explains this in Philippians 3.10. He says that I may know Christ. I want to know Him and what? And the power, the dunamis of His resurrection. Knowing Him is the dunamis. It's where we get our word dynamite from. It's a great word. It's a word that's used 118 times in the New Testament to speak of the Christian life. The resurrection life is a powerful life. It's an explosive life. It's an overcoming life. But listen, power is useless unless it's applied. We've got power in the building. Earlier, the gentlemen were trying to figure out what's the best position to put the lights in to make sure the glare wasn't on the screens and the lights were coming on and off. And, and, and what good is a light switch if it stays off? What good is a muscle car? You guys like muscle cars? What good is all that horsepower? What good is a V12? <laughs> If you never start it and press the gas pedal, you know, if you never hear the engine roar, what good is it? Our reality is this. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So as you consider on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day tomorrow, as you think and dwell on the beauty and glory of the incarnation of, of the God-man. That, that, that the creator of heaven and earth of the universe took upon himself human flesh as, you, as your jaw drops at that wonder. Understand why he came. He came to die for your sins and to rise in power and glory. That your sins would be taken away that the power of sin over you today is, is gone, it's crushed. And ap apply that truth. Apply that gem, that doctrine. Don't just polish it. Apply it into how you live and breathe and move. Apply it in how you love and how you serve and how you give. Apply it when you're hurt and offended and, and, and angry. Apply it when you're, when you're dealing with the darkest of days. Go back to the, to the reality that we live in as Christians, even with the world around us falling apart. Say, so how do we do that? Let me just take you through briefly how Paul does it. Let's follow his example. Romans chapter 6. Verse 1, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? talking about how grace covers all of our sins. And so the thought is, somebody actually is, 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 is hypothetically thinking, well then, if, if 
the more sin, the more grace, then I'll just sin more and there'll be more grace. And Paul's like, no, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized, listen to these words, baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Think about immersion. Think about baptism. Think about going in and going under. And it's not specifically just talking about the water baptism here. This is a picture of our life in Christ. It's, it means you're, you're fully immersed into. And so he says, don't you know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You see the goal that he's putting in front of us, the application. You look to Christ, you see his death, you see his resurrection, and if you're in him, you've died. Paul wrote it this way, I've been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's applying this directly to his life. We're to walk in a newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That's reality. That's where you live, Christian. For the one who has died has been set free from sin and now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Application. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. In other words, it's impossible to believe in such a power as the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and not believe that it will change you, that it will change people, that it will change families and, and churches and nations because this dunamis, this dynamite, this power changes everything, everything it touches. And so look at the gem Look at the treasure of, of the glory of Christ and His resurrection. But don't stand there staring. Don't just stand there staring. Come and see and then go and tell. And go and live. And apply it by faith and do something. Move from, into faithful obedience. Because Christian, you're a new creation. All of life, listen, every single aspect of our lives must be baptized into Jesus Christ. So all of our life, all parts of our life can be raised with his resurrection life and power. I don't exactly know who said it, it was Moody or, or I think someone said John Wesley, but there, there was a saying that said, um, the last thing to be converted in a man is his wallet. <laughs> You know, and, and the picture I have and I think about like that is, is, is baptism. And, and, I, and, and I can see like a guy getting baptized, like I'm going to serve you, Christ, in every area of my life. And as I'm baptized, I hold my hand going under. And we do that with a lot of parts of our lives. What this means, if we're going to apply the power of the gospel, of the resurrection of Christ, is that my thought life, my marriage, my children, my education, my vocation, my plans, my dreams, all of it must be plunged into the death with Jesus Christ so they can be raised in a new condition, a new state of being, all of them infused with Christ's resurrection life and power. This is the Christian life. No areas of our lives can remain unbaptized. That's what Paul is saying. If we want this resurrection power, all of it must go down. All of it must go under. So all of it can be raised in resurrection life and power. It must go down and be recreated. This is applied power. 
This is pressing the gas of the 12... What did I, what did I call it? I, tell a cylinder. There you go. I'm going to say 12 volt. It's not 12. It's like an electric car, golf cart. No, that's the world. We got a, we got a 12 cylinder. Thank you. <laughs> this is applied power. This is the dynamite of the gospel. To understand that the spirit of him who raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in you. That we are the people of the resurrection. We are the new creation. And the power of God is unleashed by the resurrection of Christ so that the effects of sin and the curse are broken and are being reversed. This is our reality. No, this is reality, not just ours. Resurrection is everyone's reality. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is so powerful that not one human will stay in the grave. Not one. Every single person will be raised and will stand before the living God either to be judged and cast into outer darkness or to receive the crown of life not by works that we have done, but by grace of God, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, believing that he came, he died. He died for me. Should have been me. And he rose from the dead, conquering the power of sin and death and hell for all who believe. This reality demands a response. Joe, let me have you come and prepare. And we're about to respond. The communion itself is a response of worship to the, the, the gospel, this good news. Each time we, we, we take of the bread and the cup, we're declaring the Lord's death. And, 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 and in that, we're also declaring the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Some of us struggle, and listen, we're going to keep struggling throughout this life. But you've got to run back to who you are in Christ. You've got to get grounded in who you are in Christ again and again and again. Yesterday wasn't enough. Today will be sufficient for today. Tomorrow, you need to be grounded in Christ. Remember these truths. After Christ was resurrected, one of his disciples was named Thomas. And you might remember his story that he wasn't there one of the times that Jesus appeared to the disciples. And so he comes back and the disciples are there and they're like, we saw the Christ. And he's like, yeah, right. I don't believe it. Until I put my hands in his, in his hand, the holes in his hands and in his side, I'm not going to believe. And right then there, Jesus shows up. Thomas. Thomas's reaction is so beautiful. It's a reaction I, I, I want my heart to have when I consider the resurrected Christ. He says, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. And then for us, it was beautiful for Thomas and for us, you might be saying, well, yeah, that was great because he was there and he saw it. And yes, but Jesus, the very next verse says to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And so believer, you are the blessed today. And as we come to the table of the communion, may we remember that the creator of the heavens and the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, all of creation, the angels, the powers, the, the, the dominions, the principalities, the thrones, the, the many-eyed cherubim who say those words, praise the Lord with me, around the throne. 
As we come to the table, we remember the, the seraphim, the, the angelic beings that Isaiah saw when he was, they were standing around the throne of God. And what did they say? They said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. We say these divine words of the seraphim taking part, if you will, with the hymn of heaven to declare the glory of our God. And we do so humbly this morning as we remember with fear and trembling and joy that Christ has come in the body and the blood to give to all the faithful his own self for heavenly food. Let us eat and drink deeply today. So Father, we come we come humbly. We come with a sense of awe and wonder. We don't come claiming to understand every part of this incredible mystery. And so we come dependent. And Lord, I ask that by your grace, you would remind the faithful of the power of the resurrection. And if there is any this morning here that could not say with assurance that they know you, that they don't know the, the joy of sins forgiven totally and completely, that they don't know the joy of walking with you in a personal relationship with the Savior, I pray, oh God, that you would grab their heart right now and change it with resurrection power. As sin is confessed, as we agree with you that we're sinners deserving of your judgment and yet you have come in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God and God the Son. You've come to live the life we couldn't live. You, you've come to die in our place so we don't have to be condemned and judged. You've come to, to show your power in resurrection. And then you give that power to those who trust you. So, oh God, be glorified in saving souls right now. Be glorified in worshipful souls right now. Be, be glorified in those who would celebrate this Christmas season with holy fear and great joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.